Bible, could you find 1 Kings chapter 11? So we've got that found and we can get there in a moment. In the past few weeks, actually a few months, I've been praying about what to speak on as we prepare for this new season in the church's life. It is a new term type feel anyway, often at the beginning of September. And also uh, with the week of prayer coming up, Vision and Prayer Week, starting next Sunday. You've got the details in the back of your uh, bulletin. And I've had lots of things going around, but I found God challenging me in a growing way, actually. Even literally in the last few days, I felt a greater weight about it. To, to look at some passages in 1 Kings. And what I'm actually going to do is going to be a lot longer the next few weeks. I'm going to go through the second half of 1 Kings, not verse by verse, but looking at stories and scenarios, and I believe God wants to speak to us out of them. So we're looking at the end of Solomon's reign in 1 Kings 11, but we're going to pick up Jeroboam, the two prophets, and some other things in the next few weeks, and then we will be looking later on at one or two of the other kings and Elijah. So actually, I believe God wants to say a lot of things to us out of this, this, and this is an important time for Winchester Family Church. We've got some significant changes in the year ahead. God's been speaking to us about their encouraging ones, their positive, they're to do with how we work as a leader, and many of you know what I'm talking about. It's not mysterious. I don't want to spend time on it this morning. But, but actually, God is speaking into us at the same time. And I believe there's some very important challenges, particularly from these opening few. Well, actually, from all of them. But these are the few that I've particularly more prepared at the moment, so I know more clearly what I feel God's saying. And I think God wants to challenge us about compromise. And uh, I think I'd want to remind you right at the beginning that uh, we have a mission statement on our website. So we're looking at the challenge not to compromise. Now this is our mission statement. It's on our website. It should go up, I think, in a minute. Our mission is to magnify Jesus Christ by building a spirit-filled Christian community of all ages and backgrounds that is engaged with the culture around it but is clearly different from it. Something different. We have this little strap line, something different. This is why we've got it. This is what it's about. It's about the kingdom of God making a difference in our lives. And our main mission, our main goal is to magnify Jesus Christ by building a spirit-filled Christian community of all ages and backgrounds that is engaged with the culture around it in this part of the world, but is clearly different from it. And I think there's a real challenge in keeping to that. In, on our website, which I'm not going to put up on the screen, we would then unpack that and say that we see this happening. Our vision is a large, dynamic, city centre church of around 800 people, which would be the capacity in this building, worshipping Jesus and engaged in this mission. So we're looking to see seven, 800 people worshipping Jesus, engaged, focused on this mission that I've just put up. We want to see person after person saved through the work of the gospel and added to the church. We do really want to see more people saved than we've had the privilege of seeing in the last year or two. I feel God wants to take us forward. I feel it has its challenges. We want to be a church of an Antioch style. I won't read everything that's there on the website, but, but that is a major part of our vision, that we're a church that serves a wider region, trains leaders, plants churches, reaches nations. A church where every person is growing in Christian maturity, the youngest to the oldest being equipped to spread spread the gospel. 
talks about flexible developing leadership team, which I think we've got. Many small community groups meeting regularly to worship God, care for one another. This building, which is the Middlebrook Centre, buzzing with life, serving the church and as a means of engaging with the community. A church that influences society, working with the other Winchester churches to proclaim Christ and advance the kingdom. And following through on our exciting links with that international family of churches, New Frontiers, working together with them. Those are the things we say we're here to do. We are still trying to do those. We're on course doing them. But I want to remind you that the main mission, the main core thing, is to build a church of spirit-filled Christians, all backgrounds and ages, engaged with a culture, but different from it. And I think we just need to let God help us as we begin this new term, refocus on those things, but also focus on ourselves, be challenged, be challenged corporately and individually, that we don't miss stuff and compromise on this big, big thing God's called us to do and to be. We don't compromise in our Christian faith. We don't compromise in our calling to be the sort of church that we believe God's called us to be. I think there are areas where possibly we do drift into compromise and have done. I think there's areas where we could but need to be warned. So it's a sort of preventative as well as corrective element to what I feel God's put on my heart. And what I'm saying today isn't just to us, and you'll see as we go on, and next week and the week after. It's not just to us as a church. It's something that would apply to you as a visitor because it's got an application to all of us as Christians in this day and age, in this country and culture. And I hope it's got personal as well as corporate application. But I want to start for this week and next week looking at King Solomon. And it's quite a sad and sobering, challenging story. We're going to read the first 13 verses of 1 Kings 11. And in doing that, I've got a sort of title, Solomon, Compromise and Complacency. And that's what's on my heart as I'm looking at Solomon. Let's read verse 1. King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter. Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians and Hittites. They were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after other gods, after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines and his wives led him astray. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods. And his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. He followed Ashtaroth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely, as David his father had done. On a hill east of Jerusalem, Solomon built a high place for Shamosh, the detestable god of Moab and for Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. He did the same for all his foreign wives, who burned incense and offered sacrifices to their gods. The Lord became angry with Solomon, because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. Although he had forbidden Solomon to follow other gods, Solomon did not keep the Lord's command. So the Lord said to Solomon, Since this is your attitude, and you have not kept my covenant and my decrees which I commanded you, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. 
Nevertheless, for the sake of David your father, I will not do it during your lifetime. I will tear it out of the hand of your son, yet I will not tear the whole kingdom from him, but will give him one tribe for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. As I said, this is quite a sad story in a way, quite sobering and challenging. Solomon had absolutely everything going for him. He got the best start in life you could get. He got everything right from his father's sort of throne and right through all the prosperity, all the uh, wealth and resources were there ready for him and he took over from David. He had a relationship with God which is enviable. Uh, you know, he heard from God, he, he, God spoke to him and he responded well to what he heard in those early days. He was wise, he was wealthy, he was successful. And actually he was admired by many of the kings around. Now what should have happened is that everything should have been on course for virtually the kingdom of God on earth. I mean, what Solomon was meant to do, it was the greatest extension of God's people in this covenantal age. David had extended the borders. Solomon, I think, extended them a little further. And really, this could have been a righteous empire like the world had never seen. It could have been an empire that put God's values at the centre and it could have been almost a precursor of what the church should be. It could have influenced the whole world for righteousness and God's ways. And That was what should have happened, but it didn't. Instead, it ended up in division, chaos, confusion, and ultimately uh, tragedy, really. And I think there are many warnings for any Christian in Solomon's life. I think there are warnings for churches, of which I would include ourselves. I think we need to be wise and sensible about these things. I think there's a warning for the church in 21st century England particularly the West, perhaps, also in what happens with Solomon. Let's just talk about it. Next week I'm going to continue out of 1 Kings 11. So I'm not committed to saying everything I want to say this week. And the PowerPoint people have to be aware of that. (laughs) I, I prepared a longer sermon and I know I'm going to be able to give. So it's going to have two parts to it. Solomon's kingdom, when you read through the chapters up to this, was was amazing. It was very well organised. If you read 1 Kings chapter 4, it's pretty impressive. I'm not going to read it, but you could look at it at your leisure. You could flick back and even glance at it. You don't hardly need to read it. You just glance at it. Solomon had it well organised. He had chief officials, district governors. It was wonderfully smooth and well organised. It was an impressive kingdom. He was wisely running it. It was effective, very effective in what it did. He stewarded things well and he made the most of what he had. There was peace and prosperity for all. 1 Kings 4 verse 20 sums up what happened and how the people were influenced. The people of Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They ate, they drank and they were happy. (laughs) Fine. Nothing wrong with that. They ate, they drank and they were happy. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. Who wants people to be unhappy? But unfortunately, they got, and so did Solomon, very complacent. They ate, they drank, they got everything they want, they were secure, and they were happy. But they got complacent. There is always a danger of that when so much that you enjoy daily is secure and well provided for and orderly, and things happen 
without you really having to think about it. Stuff comes together so beautifully, so well. Everything works and you just are happy enough and you eat and drink and you can get switched off from God. That's what really happened. Complacent. You think we're okay, we're comfortable, it works, we can handle life, we've got it under control. I think that happens for many, many British families, Christian families. We don't really have to pray every meal in, thank God. We don't have to, most of us, we had a bit of a rattle in last year, most of us a certain degree of security in all the basics of life, which is pretty good, pretty high level. And it feels like we've got it all sorted out. And we assume that because we're happy, God's happy. We're happy, so God must be happy. When I'm unhappy, God's not happy. You know, we think what we feel like is how God feels like. But it isn't quite as simple as that. And from early on in Solomon's kingdom, there are signs of the problems. Now, I've got, got, not got any time to go into this in detail. And I don't really feel that's where I should be. I feel I want to start at 11 and work on. But in the, so you'll have to trust me, but in the chapters earlier, if you read up to this, you can see signs that are worrying. One of them is a prophetic silence. A prophetic silence. There are odd words of God, but you might be surprised how little prophetic input there is in Solomon's reign. David was himself a prophet. He had Nathan constantly speaking into him. And Nathan is quite um, sort of influential at the transition from David to Solomon. And Nathan's influence seems to go just a little bit beyond the end of David's reign. But he was clearly an older man, and I presume he died and passed out of the scene. And you don't find another named prophet. Not till you get to this sort of period. There's no prophecy going on. People don't need to hear from God. It's all sorted out. I mean, it's all happening. You know. Now, you say, well, didn't Solomon have a relationship with God? Yes, he did. We're talking, over these next two weeks, we're going to learn a lot from Solomon. But actually, one of the things that's quite worrying is the prophetic voice doesn't seem to be going on amongst the people of God. Now, I can think that can happen when we get comfortable, complacent. And I think we need prophetic words. <laughs> and I would say to you, when we get ready for our week of vision and prayer, please come, bring prophetic words, be expected to hear them, and let's try and respond to them as well. I've tried to keep myself alert prophetically. I feel I've got duller over recent years. And I feel God's got on my case this year and spoken into my life, and I'm finding myself rediscovering some of the prophetic elements that I think I've let slip. I think it's surprising how when you are stable and comfortable and frankly get involved in the details of functioning life and functioning church life, how you lose the ear for the prophetic. Now, I feel God has spoken more to me recently and indeed I feel some of the changes coming up for me personally are rooted in the prophetic and for us. But we need the prophetic, don't we? It's not so much we're looking at a sin here. We're saying, how did this all happen with Solomon? Well, they did, you don't find those prophets. Now, you could say they, perhaps they weren't needed. I don't think it's quite like that. I, well, they weren't needed, but they were. <laughs> and I think we do need the prophetic. We are a charismatic church. Help us. Now, you could say, but you had a few contributions this morning. Didn't I'm not talking about in the first 20 minutes this morning. 
I mean, the first 20 minutes this morning, I felt we shouldn't have contribution. I'm going to apologise now, my wife and you. Marion said she had something. I let her in to spring it. I felt I was wrong. Because before the beginning of the meeting, Marion, what Marion brought was fine. But before the beginning of the meeting, I felt God said, just worship me for 20 minutes and go with the flow of it. And I allowed myself to, make, to change my mind. And I got it wrong. And I think we lost the slight flow of where we were going, what I felt God had said to me. Now, I'm telling you that because I think that's prophetic. I don't want you, you sit out there, you might think, oh, they've got it all organised for 20 minutes. No, we haven't, have we, John? We're trying to go with God. And I know John and I agreed we'd go for 20 minutes of flow in worship and then I changed it under a little bit of foolish, well, Marion didn't pressurise me, but she caught me out. Oh, my wife, she usually has something good to say and all that stuff. And then I, I felt, no, I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have done it. Sorry, dear. May embarrass, embarrassing you. But um, because I, if you hear from God, you've got to go with it. And I think, I think we knew that. Now, I, I feel we've got to have much more. It's not just 20 minutes. We need prayer meetings which are full of the prophetic. You need community groups that have prophecies over people's lives. Don't you? We need men's meetings, youth meetings, women's meetings, having the prophetic. We need to bring one-to-one prophetic. We need to be much more aware of words of knowledge and prophecy and flow. Yes, we can have it Sunday morning, but Sunday morning, as you saw this morning, has a number of things which must happen. It's a great opportunity to tell you new faces coming. Pray for them and and thank God for people. So that's how it is. That's life. But we do sometimes get prophetic words and praise God we could do more. But that's not where it's all stacked into Sunday morning. There's prophecy everywhere. There's prayer meetings. We need to go to the prayer meetings and hear from God. We need to get on tiptoe prophetically. Let me look at a few other things quickly. When you look through Solomon, there's another worrying sign. Pragmatic decisions. Solomon seems to make decisions not always on the basis of obeying God, but on what looks like good sense. Maybe it's sort of linked to his wisdom thing. I don't know. The biggest and most obvious one is these marriages to foreign princesses, which, you know, there is a whole other issue there, which we'll probably touch next week. But at one level, why is he marrying these women? Well, it was considered politically very shrewd. He made marriages with an Egyptian princess, and then all these other nations around. And by marrying these women, that meant they forged peaceful treaties with these nations. And Solomon had, if you like, alliances as a result with all the nations around. So that they had no war, no conflict with these nations, because not because of something God had done, but because Solomon had contrived it by marrying into the royal line of all these other nations. It was a shrewd thing. It was probably what other kings would have done. It was convenient. It really worked quite well. So what's wrong with it? Loads was wrong with it. (laughs) But it was a wise decision at a human level, but not at a spiritual level. If you were to read, and we haven't time, it's not on the PowerPoint, you were to read some of the things God says way back, like Deuteronomy, and I will read it to you briefly, you will see the folly of what he was doing. Here's a couple of verses. God said, Do not intermarry with the nations around. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. And the Lord's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. Now Solomon knew that. God said, Don't do it. 
But it seemed a very practical, sensible thing. It didn't seem to cause much problem. No lightning bolts fell. And so Solomon continued in this chapter. He had 700 wives from all these different nations. Now he started with one, the Egyptian one. You can read that. I think it's 1 Kings 3. But he gradually worked. That, this works very well. This works well. You get these alliances. You get peace. You get prosperity. Let's do it again and do it again. He took the line of least resistance, what was convenient. But it wasn't God's way. Now, I think we can all do that. I think we can do it in the UK. I think we can do it. We can do things that we just feel are sensible or wisely cautious or pragmatic. But somehow, some of them bring a compromise to spiritual principles. Principles of generosity. Principles of opening your heart up to other people. Principles of... Uh, relationship, principles of loving the poor, giving time to needy people. You know, all sorts of things that just, like, you think, and you think, well, it doesn't quite work pragmatically. I, and I find myself, and I'm very vulnerable to this, being so sensible that I'm not spiritual. You ever found yourself like that? You think, I'm really sensible. I'm not sure I'm spiritual. I'm actually quite prone to being pragmatic and sensible. That's probably because I've grown up in this country. And it's how we are. But, you know, I'm Mr. Sensible in many ways. And I feel God's always poking me. I feel recent weeks he's been poking me. I didn't call you to be sensible. I called you to be spiritual. And I'm calling you to go forward in things you know are right rather than things that just look sensible. So that's, I picked that up. Here's another thing you see with, if you look back over Solomon. You can observe that quite early on he began to indulge himself because of his resources, his wealth. So I pick up here prosperous indulgence. And actually, Solomon does a number of things that you think, I wonder what that was about. He spends longer building his own palace than he does building the temple. And he puts more effort into his own palace, it would seem. He put a lot of effort into both, as it happened. But you just think, hmm, that's a bit, maybe a bit unwise. He, he, he seems to get really involved in building his own temple. But one that really brings it home is the horses. Look at 1 Kings 4.26. It'll go on the screen. Solomon had 4,000 stalls for chariot horses and 12,000 horses. Now, horses cost a lot of money in Solomon's day. They were a very expensive thing to own. He was really into keeping horses. And you think, well, that's harmless enough, isn't it? Harmless interest. Well, not quite. It was forbidden by God. Deuteronomy 17, verse 16. Let's just see that one. It, God says to the king, the king, moreover, must not acquire... Have we got that one? Are the PowerPoints going up? Okay, sorry, I mustn't get distracted. I'm looking down here. There you are. I want to go on to Solomon, uh, Deuteronomy 6, 7. The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses. Look at it. For himself, or make people return to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way again. Now, this business of horses doesn't mean it's a sin to keep horses. You all right, Pippa, if you're here today? You love looking after horses? There you go, wherever you are. Um, and I know some, one or two others of you have got horses. It's not a sin to keep horses. That's, nothing, that's not what it's to do with. This is far more serious than that. And there's a hint of it in that Deuteronomy, or go to Egypt. But actually, when you listen to some, all through the Old Testament, this subject comes up again and again, actually. If you listen to a verse which isn't on the PowerPoint, which comes from Isaiah 31, just listen to this. 
Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help, who rely on horses, who trust in the multitude of their chariots and in the great strength of their horsemen, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or seek help from the Lord. Woe to those who don't seek help from God, don't look to God, but trust in the multitude of their chariots and the great strength of their horses. Now, actually, I won't do it for time. You can find a number of references like that. There's another in Psalm 33, verses 17 and 18, if you want to look it up, where God says, in their day, in their generation, this stood for relying on your own strength, your own firepower, your own wealth for protection. For horses, you're not just thinking of something kept as a hobby. This is to do with protection and a sort of grandeur. It's probably like the arms trade today. You know, you get countries like Saudi Arabia that have whole fleets of American jets and F-16 jets and whatever to show, not only to defend themselves, but to show they're really, you know, they're big boys. They play big boy stuff. And you get other nations always like to build up their arms. This sort of thing. Horses stood for, we're wealthy, we can protect ourselves, we've got chariots, we've got thousands of horses, we can sort anything out. It was relying on your own wealth as your own protection. They cost a lot of money. And more importantly, as you've seen in the readings I've given you, to get horses, you had to get into, into trade with Egypt, particularly Egypt, which is a massive breeder of horses. So actually, you had to compromise with Egypt. You had to get, like the arms trade is today. The arms trade is often a very murky world because you get involved in all sorts of deals. We wonder if there's even something going on about this Magahi guy who was released from Scotland. It's in our papers this last week. You know, is it behind the scenes diplomacy or oil or weapons? Well, often with countries like Saudi Arabia, when we'd sell them arms, there's a lot of both backing backwards and forwards stuff going under the table. There are seedy deals and alliances, and that happened with horses. So in order to get horses from Egypt, you've got to have alliances with Egypt and so on and so forth. But what you're doing is you're looking to your resources and human resources rather than God's resources. And that can always be a snare. You end up relying on what you've got rather than on God. And God doesn't like it. He wants you to rely on him. doesn't mean he doesn't want you to enjoy wealth. It's a blessing of God to have things. To be wealthy and prosperous is not wrong, it's not sinful, but it is, must be understood as God's blessing and I'm a steward of it and I don't rely on it for my strength, for my protection. I don't sort things out as a result of my resources. Nor do I just indulge in them at the expense of following God. Now that can easily happen when you've got resources. I know it can for myself, that you actually can have the resources, for example, for a harmless pursuit. But this harmless pursuit ends up taking you away every weekend and you're never worshipping with the, word, with the people of God. Now, I'm not, I'm not even thinking of any one thing. It's just that if you've got the resources, you always have to be careful that they don't own you, but you own them. They don't make you complacent and independent from God and even independent from God's people as well, which is not wise. Having a lot of money or resources of any sort can make you independent, not only from God, but from God's people. Both of those things are bad news. You need to keep relying on God. If you didn't have loads of horses, Solomon, you'd have had to keep relying on God. 
for your security and your strategy. Here's another thing you notice with Solomon. And I think this might be the last one. A permissive attitude. Early on, Solomon is too tolerant. Look at this 1 Kings 3, 2 to 3. This is early on in his reign. The people, however, were still sacrificing at the high places because a temple had not yet been built for the name of the Lord. Solomon showed his love for the Lord by walking according to the statutes of his father David. He's doing well at this point, except, uh uh-oh, that he offered sacrifices and burnt incense on the high places. So what's this little thing about? This is a compromise that will lead to huge problems later. What is it exactly going on here? Well, the high places were were religious sites associated with the pagan deities of the people who were in Cana before Israel came in. Now, Israel's been there for ages now, but before they went in under Joshua, the high places are where all these pagan idols were worshipped. They were religious sites all around the country. And God clearly said, get rid of them. Look at Deuteronomy 12, 2 to 5. It's going up on your screen. This is what God said. Destroy completely all the places on the high mountains and all the hills and under every spreading tree where the nations you are dispossessing worship their gods. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, burn their Asherah poles in the fire, cut down the idols of their gods, wipe out their names from those places. You must not worship the Lord your God in their way, but you are to seek the place the Lord your God will choose from among all your tribes to put his name there for his dwelling. To that place you must go. Now this is quite a significant thing. God said, there will be one place where you worship me and I will designate it. And you must go to that one place to worship me. Now, what they actually did was they worshipped God, Yahweh, in all these high places. So they would say, well, we're not worshipping Molech and and, and Baal. We're worshipping Yahweh. But we're not going all the way down to Jerusalem. We're going to do it up on the hill, St. Catherine's Hill. The hill over there where they used to worship Oggy Bogwogs. We're going to go up and worship Yahweh. Now, that sounds very sensible. Sounds like loads of hassle cut out of your life. But God said, don't do it. I, there is going to be one place and one way. Now, this is their covenant, not our covenant. Our covenant's different. Ours is one place and one way. It's, it's Jesus Christ is the one way. And the one place you worship and know the true God is through Jesus Christ and worshipping with his people in the spirit and in truth. There is no other place you will meet God. You can go to any other religious institutional building or any building, frankly, in the whole world and you might have all sorts of spiritual experiences. You will not worship the living God anywhere other than in the company of those who love him and through Jesus Christ. It's not how it works. So, you know, it was that sort of thing in their day. There will be one place where you worship me and I will choose it, which God did. You are to come together to that place. Now, having said that, the people ignored it. And they'd ignored it for centuries. But the problem with Joshua was, Solomon, I beg your pardon, was he didn't undo anything. He went with the flow of what they were doing. And in actual fact, he himself went and worshipped at those high places. 
He also sacrificed to God there. Do you know, he was just too tolerant, too permissive. Now, we live in a day and age which worships tolerance. Our culture puts a higher value on tolerance than anything else whatsoever. And it's rubbish. It's utter rubbish because it's only tolerating what our culture allows you to tolerate. So it's not general tolerance. It's tolerance as dictated by the politically correct powers that be. And if you say things, I'm even half saying them today, I might say them more next week, that are not in keeping, they will be intolerant towards me. So actually, it's a phony paper thing anyway. It's not real tolerance, it's a sort of politically correct one. However, within that context, everything has to be tolerated. You have to tolerate everything. You have to say, yes, that's all right, that's fine, that's your way of doing it. Now, actually, that trickles into our whole culture. And I think as Christians, we can just be plain too tolerant. We're tolerant of sin, we're tolerant of our own picadillos, which are sins, you know, our own lying, our own watching a bit of pornography, what we watch on the internet, the telly, what sort of thing comes into our home. I struggle sometimes with watching films because of what comes in with them. I'm, I'm into art. I grew up doing an English degree. I like drama. But I sometimes, nowadays, it's so, I think, well, sometimes I'd rather, I'd rather not watch it. Now, that's just my problem. I know, I thank God, John Piper's in the same category. Um, and says he finds it difficult. So, uh, if you don't know who John Piper is, don't worry. But, um, What I'm trying to say is, that I'm not putting that on you. I'm just saying, make sure you're not too tolerant of all that's around. Sometimes you say, no, I don't want to do that. I'm not going to watch that. I'm not going to get involved in that. We can be too tolerant of other spiritualities. We buy into postmodern pluralism. We buy into all sorts of funny little mixtures that get into Christianity. Hang on, there's a clarity, isn't there? Isn't it through Jesus Christ and by his spirit? Isn't that what I need? Now, you know, I'm not going to say things this morning because it's getting late and I might say things I regret. But I could give some examples. You think, what's that all about? And we need to be careful that we're not getting too tolerant. I think we can be too tolerant as parents. Guy said something interesting last week at Accelerate. Parents, your children aren't your friends, your mates. They are your charges. You're in authority over them to love them and bring them up in the Lord. But there's a real, like you tolerate anything, just jolly them along, friendly guidance, chummy, chummy stuff. Well, actually, in the end, you love them to bits too much to be like that. It's going to have to sometimes be bad news for them because you're telling them what to do. And I think there's a culture of excessive tolerance. Tolerating, you know, our character, our foibles. I don't know what words to use, you know. And actually think, isn't that pride? Isn't that sin? The number of times, the way people talk today, and it's also I, I assertive. I like this. I have to have this. I can't do this. I won't do that. I must do this. It's a very, very common way of talking. Sometimes we need to listen to ourselves. You know, I have to, oh, I can't do that because I can't do this. I like this. I do this. Think, Hang on a minute. Aren't we supposed to be selfless and sacrificing and putting others first and... What's so great about self-assertion? I'm doing, my, I'm doing my thing. Let's look at the gospel, shall we? Let's just talk about the Jesus. And I think sometimes we tolerate an indulgence of our pride and, our, and ourselves in an unhealthy way. We can tolerate mechanical Christianity. We can tolerate aspects of church life that aren't biblical. 
I, th- I think God's challenged me that I've been too tolerant about our lack of prayer. We've got a prayer week next week. I'd like a very big turnout at every prayer meeting. What are we talking about? Prayer is essential. Oh, it's inconvenient. Blow, it's inconvenient. Come along. Just come along. You know, let's, we're too tolerant about... You can't build church without praying. It's crazy. It's a fundamental... It's like trying to live without eating. I'm breathing and I'm drinking, so why eat? Do you know what I mean? It's one of the fundamental bits. Let's pray. Many of you are good. Not all of you are good. Let's get to it next week. Let's pray. Let's not tolerate a sort of, oh, we're going to drift along. That's not my thing. I don't eat. I don't eat. I just breathe. They breathe. I eat. You say he's gone off the rails. Yeah, I have really. I've gone a bit dotty. But what? Seriously, I feel God stirring me about my prayer life. And I've, I've really tried to put it right a lot more in the last few weeks. I've got a little card thing, which I've had for years about the Lord's Prayer. I've had it for about five years. And I'm really finding it helpful in the morning just to pray through the Lord's Prayer, just since the beginning of the August almost, I think. Just feel God's really saying to me, I want you to pray. You have been too tolerant of your own lack of prayer, John. And I feel God saying that in lots of ways. We can be very tolerant in a myriad different ways. Now, what happens with Solomon is it all swings along fine. And this is the horrible subtlety of it. So for years, nothing, no thunderbolts fall, as I said earlier. You know, they just get on. They still worship on the high places. They build the temple. Well, that's nice. But they keep the high places. So you've got both. Oh, right. And, and it, they just swing along with it. But actually, it ends up in full-blown apostasy, which is where we are in chapter 11. It ends in disaster. It takes years to get there, but it ends in disaster. And what happens in chapter 11, and this is where we are finishing, it's not point by point, but in chapter 11, a lot of things come home to roost. And God doesn't want things to come home to roost for us, and I don't believe they will, actually. But what happens in chapter 11 is that enemies start to rise up on the right and the left. And you've got chapter 11 in front of you. Verse 14, there's a guy called Hadad. Uh, It says, the Lord raised up against Solomon an adversary, Hadad the Edomite. Verse 23, the God raised up against Solomon another adversary, Rezon, son of Eliada, or whatever he is. And then verse 26, also Jeroboam, son of Naboth, rebelled against the king. Now, he was one of the king's officials. And suddenly, Solomon has all these problems coming in from the right, the left, and the inside of his kingdom. And the end of his life is marked by a lot of conflict and a lot of tension. And Solomon can say, what's going on, God? Where are the promises you gave me? Promises of an eternal kingdom, promises that it would all be peace and expansion. What's going on? I've got them pressing in from that angle, pressing in from this angle. even got them rising up in my own ranks. And Solomon fought them. He counterplotted against the enemies and the adversaries. But this is the final substantial point. These adversaries would have been nothing if Solomon had not made God his enemy. That was the problem. God raised up. God raised up. So actually the root wasn't anything to do with these Hadads and Jeroboams. The root was Solomon's relationship with God. And do you know that is always how it is for all of us, isn't it? It's always the same. Sorry if you like variety, there's a certain lack of variety to your problems. Fundamentally, it is not your circumstances that are your problem, it's your walk with God that will help you to deal with them properly. 
I know circumstances to be dreadful, but it is your reaction to them that is going to be important. I've watched godly people handle the most dreadful circumstances, see change and come through them amazingly. I've watched people handle very trivial circumstances and collapse and virtually lose their faith. It's not the problems, it's the relationship with God. That's what it was with Solomon. In the end, Solomon's answer was to get right with God and then let God deal with the enemies. That is always how it is. So when we prepare ourselves for our prayer week, when we come to our prayer week, we're certainly going to start on Sunday just making sure we do business with God. We're going to do it today as we finish. We're going to say, God, most important is that I keep right with you. It was all about that with Solomon, the whole thing. Our vision and prayer week is a good chance to do that. Our relationship with God, all of us, is paramount to how our life goes. It's the deciding factor on how your life will end. We'll talk about that next week. Sorry to tantalise, but I had all sorts of things I could have said this week. Because it is how you end that matters, not how you start. (laughs) Solomon started well, but he didn't end well. And actually the key was to keep his relationship with God, which he did have originally. And the key is to keep going on with the Lord and keep close to him. And the same is true for all of us. I'm going to ask the musicians to come up. Can you come up please, John? We did warn them we'd be a few minutes late and of course we we knew that with all that we had. What I really wanted to do this morning is to provoke you. It's only one part of a two-part talk. I want you to come next week listening. Sometimes we're going to find a few more answers than I might have felt I've been able to give this morning. But the basic point is so important. Lord, you are first in our lives. And really, I want you to just almost end with reflective worship. God, are there ways in which I have allowed myself to compromise? Have I slipped from standards I once had? Have I just forgotten about you? Do I just sort of not treat prayer very important? Now just let's do some business with God. Let's get ready, and we'll do it during our prayer week as well. We're going to pray for stuff, but also say, God, will you please speak to us? It is so easy to get comfortable and compromise. I just know it is. I mean, I could almost know that I could, um, I could have a secure job with a reasonable income working for you guys and, and play it safe. And God's told me not to. That's why some of the things I'm doing for the year ahead, I don't know quite how it's all going to go. And I think, I think God, it's not to be delivered. God's saying, I just want you to keep dependent on me. And, and, and it's so easy when everything is happy and you're well fed and you're all happy just to forget that it's all about me. Okay? Now many of you, you're okay. I hope I'm roughly okay. But it's always good to recalibrate at the beginning of a new season. Some of you, it's more a serious challenge. I think God would say, you know, don't compromise on things that you know are wrong. Don't just tolerate them. Don't just permit or tolerate something that you know isn't what's right. Put it right as we begin to come into this new season together so that we can really hear from God. Let's get the prophetic flowing again. Let's stand together. Thank you, John. Let's get the prophetic flowing together. Just